Well, good morning, everyone. Well, it is good to see you all today. I'm going to open up with a word of prayer and then get back into, for at least a little bit, our study of Second Peter. So, join me as I open our time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the work that you're doing in our lives, Lord. I thank you for the encouragement of Pastor Steve's message this morning of reminding us that you choose nobodies to be your servants, your followers. We're not apostles, but we are your messengers. We're your ambassadors, and we thank you, Lord, that you choose nobodies like us for salvation and for service. So we pray that you'll continue to grow us and strengthen us as we have opportunities to proclaim you to a lost and dying world. Lord, give us boldness and courage. And when we fail and when we stumble and when we sin and when we fall, Lord, I pray that you would help us to tune out the lies of Satan that says there's no hope and be reminded of truths, including truths that we'll study today, that when we're in Christ, you see us as you see Jesus. We're cleansed, we're loved, and we're yours. And we ask all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn back to Second Peter. My goal today is to finish verse 1. So, so we started last time, and I'll give a, a little bit more of an overview, because I haven't taught for three weeks. And so, as you recall, I introduced the book the first Sunday of July, and then I taught one message, and I began on chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, and as I shared in that first message, more than any book that I can recall studying in a while, Peter, in the first few verses, lays out the roadmap for the entire book. He really lays out the foundation for everything he's going to be talking about in these first four verses, and so it seemed clear to me from my study that he was laying the foundation of the book, and so my outline was just that, the foundation of Second Peter. And so there were three parts to the outline, and I'll briefly go through it, because we only completed one point the last time I taught, and I started the second, and I'm going to talk about the second some more, and I'm going to talk about the second some more next week, because it's a big point. But I want to just bring us up to speed to remind us where we are, and hopefully... I'll be back next week and my shoulder will be okay for me to, to type and I'll teach and we'll just build off of this. So, the first aspect of the foundation of Second Peter was the messenger of God. The messenger of God. And it was my shortest point. It's the only point I completed. And the author identifies himself and I think his identity is part of the foundation for this letter. Simon Peter, verse 1, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. And he uses a unique form of his name, of a Hebrew form, Simeon. But it was Jesus that gave him the name Peter. And we looked at that. John chapter 1, verses 40 and 42. I won't reread it, but I read it last time. So he refers to himself as Simon Peter, the fullness of his name. And he says he was a bondservant. That's just the word doula, slave. Someone with no rights. Certainly it's a humble recognition of who he is. But in the context of things, slave 
wasn't a flattering term for anyone. A slave in the Roman system had no rights. They were property. They were dirt. They were lower than dirt. They were in servitude. They had no rights. They were at the mercy of their owner and their master. And in a sense, when Peter refers to himself as a slave of Christ, he's not saying that's a demeaning sense, but it's a humble position because he's making it clear, I'm not doing this on my own. I am not my own master. This isn't my agenda. I serve the king. He's doing the will of his master. Everything he's saying isn't about what Peter thinks and why Peter thinks the world should be the way it should be. He is a slave of Jesus and everything he says comes from the master. And yet even as he speaks with such humility, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. In God's sovereignty, Steve covered everything about apostle today. Again, reiterating how important these men were to the foundation of the church. So on the one hand, Peter's making it clear, I'm not self-willed. This isn't about me. I'm doing the will of my master. But he's also making it clear, I'm speaking with authority because I'm sent by Jesus. I serve Jesus. He's my master but he also sent me. So when I'm speaking, I'm speaking as his messenger with his authority. These aren't just words. These are words commanded by the Spirit of Christ. When he speaks, he speaks with the authority of Jesus. And that's going to be important as he fights against false teachers and liars and deceivers and false prophets but that will come later. So the first foundation of 2 Peter was the messenger of God, and the second was the work of God. The work of God. And it's going to take time to develop this, and it's, going to, it's an unusual circumstance because I'm going to develop this through four verses, and then I'm going to come back with a third point and overlap and go through those verses again with a different emphasis. Because the work of God is in all of this, and we only barely started scratching the surface of that with the designation of who this letter was going to. The second part of verse 1 says this, To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I discussed this, I think on July 10th, but in all likelihood... The recipients of this letter are the same people that received 1 Peter. In 2 Peter 3, 1, Peter says, This is the second letter I write to you. Most scholars think that is referring to 1 Peter. So, he was writing then to churches in a particular part of Asia, modern-day Turkey. But his point in writing to these letters the second time is not the geography, it's what's going on in their hearts. He says, to those who have received. And as I mentioned last week, I missed a lot of this before I started studying it. When I just read it, I'm just getting through, who's it going to? Let's move on. But the work of God is permeating this. Even that designation, to those who have received, meaning we didn't earn something. It was given to us. We didn't go out and capture something. We weren't smarter than other people. Certainly, this does describe all believers, including you and I. We've received, 
And it begins a focus on God's work, what God did. God gave us this gift. And what were they given? To those who received a faith of the same kind as ours. And again, this is all review from last time. And there was discussion, and I mentioned it, that there were some people that wonder, okay, was this a Jew and Gentile disagreement and things? But I think more likely, Peter is talking about the fact that the faith that we have is no different than the faith an apostle has. So we've received a faith. There's a lot that goes into that. Faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. But it's really talking about what God did. We didn't love God, but he loved us. John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So in all of that, that simple phraseology, have received the same faith, it's just talking about the fact that God worked and when he emphasizes the same kind as ours, he's just making it clear, I'm an apostle, but I don't have a different faith than you have. What saved me is what saved you. The same Jesus saved us all. Certainly the apostles had a great stature. They were towering giants amongst the people. People listened to them. God used them to write scripture. But Peter's saying, look, we're all in the same boat. There's not a separate faith for leaders, for apostles, for pastors. We may have different roles, but everything that an apostle had in Christ, the greatest of the great, is what we have in Christ, the least of the least. And so that basically brings us up to speed. That gets us there. But like I said, I want to finish the first verse, and so we might run over a couple of minutes to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, it's pointing out what God did. This greeting, aren't, these aren't throwaway words. We receive faith, it was a gift from God. And Peter explains here in just a few words, profound theological truth that theology books write chapters on. an important truth and at the end of my explanation I'm going to tell you the theological words many of you would have heard it but it's not important the theological words to use it's important the truths that are here Peter's making it clear the faith we receive comes by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ righteousness as used here, is referring to God's justice. His accurate understanding of guilt and innocence, guilt and punishment. His sense of justice. This has to do with God's correct and proper evaluation of sin and guilt and what it deserves. So we've received a faith, it's the same kind as the apostles, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, by the justice of God. Why this is so profound can be easily answered by a simple question. 
apart from Jesus, how much righteousness do you have? If God is talking about justice, where do we stand in that apart from Jesus? We know, but I'll remind us, Isaiah 64, 6, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. All of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Okay, well, that, maybe that's just the Old Testament Jewish people. Maybe that was just talking about them. Well, New Testament, Romans 3, 9 to 12. Again, familiar words. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, okay, this isn't just about the Jews, are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. The next time somebody tells you, but they're a good person, take them to this verse. They're not. They might be better in our fallen world than a lot of people. So, of course, that means if we're talking about God's righteousness, His sense of justice... We're all in trouble because his accurate assessment of guilt and innocence would find us guilty and the wages of sin is death. So Peter is explaining in a few words profound truths about the gospel. And these are going to be anchoring truths that matter to people who are being buffeted by false prophets who are telling them other things they need to be reminded of the centrality of what has happened. False teachers always distort the person and work of Jesus as part of their satanic deception. And so Peter's laying this foundation and he's really putting it down hard. Our salvation is a gift of God. We received it. We didn't work for it. And because of it, because of the work of Jesus... We don't have to fear God's justice. And there's a lot tied up in this idea of the righteousness of God, of God's justice. And there's two components that I'll highlight right now. One, of course, is that Jesus always obeyed. I always did the will of my Father. He didn't sin. He didn't fall short. And yet, even though he perfectly obeyed the law, he died in the place of sinners, perfectly accepting God's wrath. So there's two components of Jesus' works. One, he perfectly fulfilled the law. He obeyed it. And then he died in the place of all of those who didn't, which is everyone, whoever believes. So Peter's highlighting this truth, and I'm going to summarize it. Next week I'll come back to it in more detail because I realize I'm running late. But he's really highlighting that we have precious truth wrapped up in our faith because of the work of Christ. I'll read Romans 3, 21 to 26, which summarizes this. 
But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. i got other verses that maybe I'll come back and read when I do a summary next week. But here's the point. At the moment we were given the gift of faith, we placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we got forgiveness but we also got Jesus' righteousness. The doctrine is known by theologians as the imputation of Christ's righteousness. In other words, when we look in the mirror, what do we see? We see sinners. Why? Because we're still struggling with sin every single day. And we know we're forgiven. Praise the Lord for that. That's incredible. That's comforting. It's profound. But here's the issue, and it goes a little further. At the moment of our salvation, the righteousness of Jesus is placed on our account. Not in the future, but now. That doesn't mean we don't struggle with sin, but what it does mean is this. When God looks at you, certainly He's a Father who disciplines His children. I'm not suggesting He doesn't see all those things, but... When God looks at you, he sees Jesus. Our sins are removed as far as the east from the west, but beyond that, the righteousness of Jesus is in our account. When God looks at us, we're already clean. We're already forgiven. We are righteous even now because of Jesus. Again, I'm not saying we don't struggle with sin. We know we do. If anyone says he's without sin, he's a liar and the truth's not in him. But what we have to realize is that we're not daily earning God's favor. We're not waking up today, today I'm going to make God smile at me. God already loves you. God already has showed his smile upon you. You are safe in the arms of Jesus now. You're righteous because God gave us that righteousness. I remember years ago at our church in Fresno, didn't always have great teaching. The pastor was capable, but he was distracted. But I remember there was a sermon where he asked, how many of you are righteous? And it was a lot bigger church than Lakeside and two services, but a bigger one service was a lot bigger than Lakeside. And I remember there were only a couple of hands went up and one of them was sitting beside me. I looked at Debbie. I'm not going to raise my hand. Here's the point. Those few hands were right. We are righteous. Because the imputation of Christ's righteousness, meaning our faith puts the righteousness of Jesus in our account, means we're righteous right now. We're righteous because Jesus has given us His righteousness He's taken away our guilt. It's nailed to the cross and it doesn't come back. 
I'm going to have to leave that there, but I want you to reflect on it because it matters a lot because Satan is a liar and the father of lies. And every day he whispers in our ears, you're not worthy. Who do you think you are? You stumbled like a dog returning to its vomit to that same pattern of sin. Why do you even bother? And what Peter's telling his audience and what he's telling us is that's a lie from the pit of hell. If you know Jesus, you're secure because you have the righteousness of Jesus placed on your account. We're buffeted every day by false teaching. We're buffeted by our flesh. We're buffeted by our own weakness. And none of this is to cause us to say, well, it doesn't matter what we do. Yes, it does. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. But it's to remind you to be able to tune out the lies of Satan that say, you're not worthy. Because you're not. But you have Jesus. And it makes you worthy. Because you've got his righteousness for all eternity. I'll close us by praying through Romans 8, 38 and 39. So join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for what you've done for us. Lord, I pray that we can truly appreciate the depth of your love for us. Lord, we are sinners and we want to repent and we don't want to continue as dogs returning to vomit, going back to the same patterns of sin. Lord, the longer we're saved, the more we hate temptation and the struggle against sin and the struggle against our flesh because it's relentless and it never goes away. Lord, help us to cling to the true promises that you've given us that even in our current state, we have the righteousness of God on our account. And Lord, help us live daily with the promise that you gave us through Paul in the book of Romans. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.